Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I began a, series, I began a series of messages on handing down your faith about three weeks ago. We've been into marriage, and then next week we're going to be looking at, at the uh, flip side of that, that parenting and the issues that we face all there. When we go to the marriage altar, uh, we make vows to one another and God based on the love we have for one another. In fact, when you are in love with someone, you really do want to make some sort of commitment. But yet, marriage has kind of fallen on hard times. People wonder, why do you need a piece of paper? Why do you need a piece of In fact, maybe the piece of paper and marriage, or rather uh, marriage, just kills, kills love. I mean, after all, now, now you have to. And maybe the situation really is, when you're, when, un, when you're unwilling to marry someone, is that your love has not grown deep enough for that person. But it has fallen on hard times. Divorce rate has doubled uh, since 1960. And by the way, these are all bad news stuff. In 1970, 89% of the births were to married parents. Today, those births are about down to 60%. 72% of American adults were married back in 1960. Now, less than 50% of adults are married. And so, it goes something like this. You know, love is essential for marriage, But love doesn't last. So therefore, marriage can't last. At least that's how the world kind of looks at it. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, last week we looked at the five five of the barriers that we face in our marriage relationships. Today we look at the sixth, and that is a loss of love. And so we want to look at Ephesians chapter 5 one more time, finish out the passage by asking these questions. What is love, first of all, and why does it waver? Why do you why are you in love with someone and then fall out of love with them? Then thirdly, what are the symptoms? And then very quickly, how can we get it back? How can we recover that love what we have for one another? Well, first of all, we look at the question, what is love? Ephesians chapter 5, we said, really was about the Christian life. Paul was saying in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. You are precious in his sight. You're, you're in him. You're in Christ. And here's how you are in Christ by receiving Christ into your heart as your personal Savior and Lord. And then after that, you need to be growing in Christ. The last three chapters are about the application. As we look at this passage, it's really about the Christian life. But Paul, now the Apostle Paul, is using an example of the home, and it's a long example. It starts in verse 22 of chapter 5 and doesn't end until chapter 6 and verse 4. And so as we're looking at this passage... We ask ourselves the question, first of all, what is this love? Notice in verse 18, he says, don't be drunk with wine. This is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We said, Paul's command is this, don't be drunk with wine, but as the man is controlled by the wine, you be that empowered, you be that controlled by the Spirit of God. Then he talks about, hey, if you do this, you're going to have a joyful heart, verse 19. Thankful heart, verse 20. Verse 21, he says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so the general population of the church, our job is to be submissive as unto the Lord. Whatever authority is over us, we're to be submissive as unto the Lord out of reverence for Jesus Christ. So it's everything to do with the Christian life. And so what is the love? Look in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. We looked over this last week. Now, as the church submits to Christ, 
so also should submit, wives should submit, and everything to their husbands. But look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, as we look at this passage, we ask ourselves the question, how does the world, our culture around us, really feel about love? How would they, how would they really define it? define it? Well, by romantic movies, by romantic comedies in those movies and television shows, and maybe romantic novels as well. Again, the world's concept is this. Love is essential for a good marriage. Love doesn't last. Therefore, marriage just cannot last. Why do they feel that way? Well, because marriage to the world is a consumer relationship. Now, there's a big difference between what God requires and God asks, that is a covenant relationship, and a consumer relationship. For example, you start dating, you're going to start off in a consumer relationship. I mean, my goodness, you're going to size them up, right? You're going to be looking and say, well, you know, how tall is he or, or, or how, how does she look? And does, am I really attracted to her? Is he going to be a good provider for me? Is he going to be a good husband and a good father? You're sizing them up. You're a consumer. And so you're, you're out on the dates, and it's before you're even engaged, and you find out, wow, you know, he really cut that guy off in traffic, and he's got a, a bad temper, and, and you, you strike him off the list. And then, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the girl, on the other hand, does something, and, and she's not very kind to a child or whatever, strike her off the list. It's a consumer relationship. But by the time you get to the altar, that, cons- that ought to change from a consumer to a covenant relationship but it all oftentimes does not. Things change. You come to the altar, you make those vows to one another, they're precious, man, you just can't wait to be married, and then things begin to change. He gets bigger, maybe he doesn't make the kind of living he used to make, and so he doesn't bring home enough, as much money after all he got laid off. On the other hand, she's involved with the kids all the time. He's involved with his career all the time. He's wanting to go out and play golf. She's wanting to go out and play tennis with the girls. Everything has kind of changed. And you think to yourself, well, you know, I'm looking for a new deal. Man, this is an ordeal, so I'm going to look for a new deal. And so you look at it as a consumer. Things change, therefore marriage changes and, and love runs out. The Bible presents it as a covenant relationship, and that is a covenant relationship is something that's commitment of permanence. In the Old Testament, what they had were were covenants, and this is what Paul is drawing from. For example, the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament. His name was Abram. God changed it to Abraham, the father of many nations, and he made a covenant with him where he he cut animals in half. He put half the animals on one side, half the animals on another, and that was the covenant relationship. Both parties would walk through between those animals, and the commitment would be this. May it happen to me what happened to these animals if I break this commitment. That's the covenant relationship. It is a permanent one. Now, with Abraham, of course, you remember the story, only God walked through. So God God was all in. He was making all the commitment on that particular relationship. But when we're talking about a covenant relationship in marriage, it's something of permanence. It's something that's together. I'll give you an example. Right now, if we have parents, we'll say a mom, just leaves her, her kids behind. She drops them off at an orphanage and just leaves them. Our society frowns upon that. Most of us do. However, if, if a lady, on the other hand, becomes really... Uh, disgusted with her marriage, just can't take it anymore, she leaves, we'll we'll just say, well, that's not good, but 
there must be a story behind it. Because we look at marriage as a consumer relationship, and we look at raising children as a covenant relationship. It's something that's permanent. You should never do that to your children. And so we've, we have the difference. The difference between a consumer and a covenant relationship, and even the wedding ceremony. Listen to the, some of this stuff. Wedding ceremony. Family seated on opposite sides is a covenant setting. Remember the animals. So when you're, when, when you're walking through the door at a wedding, what do they ask you? Are you with the bride or with, your, with the groom? And so they're asking you what side of the animal are you on, you know, so to speak. And because that's the covenant setting, the groom enters first, initiating the covenant. The wedding dress is a sign of purity. Holding the right hand on a pledge is making that pledge and that commitment to one another. The wedding ring, a symbol of authority and unending uh, love. Uh, the pronouncement is to establish a point in time that the couple begins the marriage and, and that covenant relationship. The invitation to the reception is a picture of salvation. And so we look at the wedding, even the modern-day wedding says covenant, 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 covenant. But the world says, hmm, consumer, consumer, things have changed. Uh, you know, I want another deal. You know, this is not the deal that I, that I, I started with. My wife has changed. My, my husband has changed. And yes, they are. They, they are going to change. And so you, we have to have the covenant relationship. With the Bible, the Bible says Jesus gives us the example right here in verse 25. I read it a moment ago. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, you, some of you biblical scholars have heard the word agape or agapeo in this case. Agapeo is being an unconditional love. Well, you can interpret it that way. And the reason why we interpret it that way is because it's the highest form of love. It's God. It's the way that God loves us. When he says, for God so loved the world, same word, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Same word that we use right here in husbands loving your wives. Now, I don't know if, if a human being can come to an unconditional love. Love can be killed and destroyed even though it should be an extreme, extreme, extreme stuff. However, this is a godlike love. This is the highest form. In other words, I'm putting, I'm putting the other person ahead of myself. In fact, here's a wonderful definition of love. I got this from um, a psychologist, but at the same time, it was too long, so I'm just paraphrasing and condensing for you. Love is a sacrificial commitment for the good of another, even if they are undeserving. Let me repeat that. Love is a sacrificial commitment for the good of another, even if they are undeserving. All throughout that, the only thing I'm hearing is unselfish, unselfish, and giving. Giving ourselves. How should a husband love his wife? Well, just like Christ, he gave, he was all in. He gave himself up to die on the cross for our sins. And so we look at this totally different definition of love. In fact, love, Jesus made love in a, from a noun to a verb. It's an action word. We ought to love one another, and in loving one another, we do something behind that love. And a commitment's one of them. G.K. Chesterton, the uh, theologian, philosopher of old, has said this. When we go, when we fall in love with somebody, he used the marriage altar as an example. But when we fall in love with somebody, there's just something within us. We just can't help ourselves. We want to make a long-lasting commitment when we're really in love. When we, we love someone enough, we want to make a commitment. 
You've heard it said before, you know, when, two, when a couple gets together and they're looking into one another, another's eyes and they say, I'm going to love you forever. I'll be in love with you forever. I will always love you. What are they saying? Without, without the piece of paper, without the marriage ceremony, they're saying, I am just, I'm just compelled in my heart to make a commitment of, some, of say something that is a lasting commitment. I'm just driven to it. And that's the way the biblical love is. Now, how in the world do we lose this? Well, I want us to look at, at a few reasons here. And really, it's a sequence of what happens in our life on how love wavers in our life. And perhaps it's wavering in your relationship today. It says in verse 26 that he might sanctify her. Talking about the husband, really talking about the church. Let's read this as a church. That Christ might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a picture of Christ and the church. And so Christ's job is to make us more like himself every day until we get to heaven, and then we will be in heaven without blemish. Not here, but up there. But you understand what Paul is saying here. The job of a husband, and really I would say to a certain extent the wife as well, it applies, is to complete one another. That's what we're about. We're completing one another. Now, on the one hand, we've said before that she takes her strengths and weaknesses, he takes his strengths or weaknesses, get them, to, get them together, and that's what you have. We've talked about the, the wife being the helper, and the helper means the same thing as the Holy Spirit, empowered to bring her gifts to the table to complete the work. But how do you really complete one another? It says right here, sanctify them. How are you going to do that? You're going to just naturally, without trying, without having your own agenda, you're going to be naturally rubbing the person the wrong way. And what happens? When you do that, when you're just not in agreement with everybody all the time, you rub one another the wrong way, and you begin to irritate one another. But the irritation is there, and it's necessary to bring about certain change in your life that the Holy Spirit is using in your life. Now, men, God's going to use your kids to irritate you. Do I have an amen? going to use your wife. You're going to use your husband. And why? Because we're there to complete one another. Now, here's the problem. The person that we love the most, the person that we want to impress the most, the, one that we, the woman that we want to respect us above any other woman or any other person in the world knows us better than anybody else. And that is a handicap. <laughs> right? I mean, sure. And if you had a roommate in college, it maybe helped a little bit. I hope it did. Prepare you for marriage a little bit. All of a sudden, the roommate looks at you and says, I can't believe you do that. I can't believe about this. Yeah, you're, you're about this. And somebody says, well, why can't I be, be a friend with this person? Because you're irritating, and this is the reason why. Now, you had a friend that close. That's great. Chances are you didn't. So you get into the marriage situation. You, are, you have established certain habits in your life. She has established certain habits in her life as well. And you begin to rub one another, and you begin to get irritated by certain things. And after a while, they don't change, and you have to be the irritant. You don't want to be. You don't plan to be. It's not your agenda. Again, it's the Holy Spirit's agenda. It just happens. And you lose respect for your husband. And you lose your love a little bit for your wife. Why does that happen? 
Because we don't have any ammunition. We don't have any resources in order to combat that. Uh, Willard Harley and Gary Smalley talk about a thing called the love bank. And that love bank is basically you do something nice and really good and for your, for your wife or your husband, and they have a little love bank in there, and they just drop, it just, things are just dropped, deposits are dropped in the bank. You know, all the credits are in there, all the credits. And so, when you have to come to a, a, a friction point in your life, you take some of that out. You do. You spend it. You spend some of that in the love bank on that, and maybe it takes a few weeks even to work through something, an adjustment in your marriage, but you're, you've got something to spend. The problem is, the love bank is not getting deposits. And that's the problem that comes up in the marriage. Now, we said last week that what happens, we come with desires into our relationships. We do, and there's nothing wrong with desires, nothing wrong with it all. Here's, here's this other box, and this, this has uh, desires uh, in them. And we said that maybe she has a dream of having this wonderful wedding that costs $30,000, $40,000, and Maybe he has a dream of eloping, you know, or whatever. And, and so, but anyway, her desires are in there. And then maybe her desires is to have that house with a white picket fence. And his desires to have a good hunting dog, you know, and go, go hunting on the weekends. And all these desires are there. The problem is we take those desires and we move them at marriage and we move them over here to expectations. I expect my husband or my wife to meet my desires in my life. I was, we said there's a few things you can expect. You know, the Bible says right here to cherish, to provide uh, for your family and to, uh, you know, a reasonable amount, not get rich, just kind of provide, and a few other things as well. But the rest of it is just desires. Nothing wrong with having them as long as they remain in that box. But So what happens? If they remain in that box and your, your husband, we'll just say your husband uh, gives you flowers on Valentine's Day, you kind of expect that maybe, but now your desire is for him to send you flowers just out of the blue. Just be romantic, you know, and uh, do it at, uh, maybe once a month on average, but not on schedule, just on average. <laughs> and, and that's your desire, okay? And that's all. It's not an expectation. You don't even really expect him to do that, but he does it. And so what happened? Whoa, I can't believe he did that. Man, that, that makes me feel so good. So what happens? There's a deposit made in the love bank. But if you expect that, over here, you, you, in that expectation box, and you expect it, and then he gives you flowers. Well, that's just expected. That's just expected. You know, he has this uh, desire that, man, he just loves the way mama used to cook that roast beef. And his mama would cut his meat for him. No, this is not a word, a personal testimony, I assure you. And so, uh, and she, he says, well, I expect it. And I expect my, my, my mom always cleaned up and she always waited on me hand and foot. And so that's, that's kind of his desire. But then he moves it over here and says, no, it's really my expectation. I expect to eat roast beef just like my mama used to make. And so by some miracle or whatever, she gets the recipe, you know, wrestles that away from her mother-in-law. And, uh, and makes that, and he says, oh, this tastes just like Mama used to make. There's nothing in the love bank here. He expected that. He expected her to clean up. He expected him, her to wait on him. It's just an expectation that he has because of how he was raised. Nothing in the love bank at all. 
Now, when those desires become expectations, we're grateful for nothing. Same way with the the book I wrote, uh, Overcoming Spiritual Vertigo. I said in that book that in order to have faith for the future, you've got got to be grateful for the no longer. You have to be grateful for the things that God has done without expecting God, for example, to answer all of your prayers just the way you want them to be answered because it's not in the Bible that we should even expect that. And so if you don't expect that, when he answers that prayer, you're grateful and you remember it. But if it's an expectation that's really not even biblical, then it's over here. Oh, you know, yeah, you answered that prayer. I mean, you were supposed to, God. I'm a Christian. That's just what you're supposed to do. Just, you know, rub the, rub the lamp and genie comes out and you're supposed to do anything I want you to do. You're not grateful. It applies to marriage. It applies to raising children. In fact, every area of life. Are your desires in your expectation box? If it is, what happens is over a period of time, withdrawals are made from the love bank, because you are um, going to do wrong things. You're going to make mistakes. You know that, right? I mean, you've been married long enough, most of you know, you're not perfect. You know, you're going to make mistakes. And so withdrawals are made, and there's just not enough in the bank to make those withdrawals because of the expectations. So what happens? Well, there's no deposits to the love bank, and after a while, anger. Number one cause of divorce is anger. Why? Well, the love bank is empty, and, and all, you, all you are having now is irritation. He, he or she is not made, meeting your expectations. You're, you're, therefore, you're not grateful for anything. But these irritations, these things where they know you better than anybody else, and they bring stuff up. I mean, the nerve of them, you know? And all of a sudden, anger comes in, bitterness comes in, and you're just not meeting my needs. What, what is it saying there? I've got a me marriage. I got a me marriage. It's like the lady at my first church. I preached on uh, being married and uh, parenting and all that. And you say, well, how many kids did you have? Well, I had none at that time. Well, were you married? No, I, I was a single pastor. And yes, I threw away all those messages that I preached in that series. <laughs> but this couple dropped out of church. And, and uh, I heard very quickly, yeah, she's asking to leave. So we went over there and visited her. And I said, you know, what's the problem? And at first, she wouldn't tell me. Finally, she just said, well, after that series of messages you preached, I realized that my husband just wasn't the man that I needed in my life. She kicked him out. That's the only reason. He wasn't assertive enough. Wasn't a leader enough. See, the expectations were raised. All of her desires, all of her desires were put over here and expect. Now I'm going to go and expect the, the new man I found to meet my expectations. Well, what happens? Anger comes in. What are the symptoms? You say, well, my marriage is fine. It's doing good. It's not bad. I'm living with it. Okay, Paul David Tripp, who does a lot of marriage family counseling, written books. He's been here at our church doing a conference on, um, on marriage. So there's five things that you need to look at and see whether you are uh, in this category of the love bank being empty. He wouldn't call it that, but I'm calling it that. Five things. Disunity. You Winning an argument is more important than harmony. All right? Number two, misunderstandings. You've gone through a, enough arguments before, and, and after all, they never meet your expectations. They, they just never, they're just not there, and so they must not love you. And you've been through enough arguments trying to win them 
that you automatically expect anything coming out of your spouse's mouth is something negative when it's not. It, it may be something very positive. Misunderstandings because of lack of communication. Then separation, a silent conspiracy, conspiracy he calls it. Going along to get along, no, no confrontation at all. Well, if there's no confrontation, just like raising your son, if there's no confrontation, if you never challenge anything that he's doing or saying, you're not any good to him. Can I say it that way? You're, you're really not shaping him into the man that he needs to be because nobody, he's just going along his way and, and no one is there to correct him. And then physical dysfunction. He says a good sex life is, not a result, is a result rather of a good marriage. It does not make a good marriage. You're going through the motions. You're doing your, your duty as a marriage partner. There's an indication the love bank is getting low. Conflict. You just can't get along. Can't forgive. You just can't let things go. Because, why? Why? Because of the anger. The anger. Nothing's being put in, and things are just being taken out. So how do you, how do, you do it? How, how do you help yourself? How do you recover it? Well, it says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying church is complicated. And the more people you have, the more complicated it gets. Communication becomes tougher. People aren't coming maybe as often, and so they don't know really what's going on. They're not hearing all the series of messages. Church is complicated. But he said, hey, just like church is complicated, marriage is complicated. And it starts off a little bit different place than what we realize. Because the number one thing that you need to do is rekindle your love for God. You see, a marriage pro problem is a me problem. What I have, when I have marriage problems, I'm putting myself on the throne. I'm saying, look, I, I need my expectations. It's, it's me. I need, I need my expectations met. I have to have needs. I need to, I, I, I. And she's maybe doing the same. I, I, I. That's how your marriage is going. So what's the problem? The problem is, is a self-centeredness. Look what it says here in the scriptures. It says in uh, in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. <clears throat> Your body's his body and vice versa. You belong to one another. You're, you're one flesh. You're glued together. It's just like these two pieces of paper. Some of y'all have done this in Bible school, and you've taught Bible school, and you construction paper, and some little boy will come along and take that Elmer's glue, right, and put all over that paper and glue those pages together, and you think, what have you done? My goodness, you got a, you got a blue piece of paper and an uh, orange piece. Let, let's divide those up. Let's pull them apart. What happens when you pull them apart? You tear it up, but part of the orange is on the blue, part of the blue is on the orange, and you can never get them really apart. We're glued together. It says When it says that we are to cleave to one another and uh, hold fast to one another in the version that I have in verse 31, it tells us that we're members of one another. We're together. We're glued. This word hold fast means to glue. We're glued together, and the two are one, one flesh together. Now, we look at this, and we think to ourselves, I've got to start by beginning to love God and not put myself first. In the book of Revelation, 
it tells us that um, in Revelation chapter 2, it tells us in there that, um, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you first did or else I'm going to come to you and take your testimony away. He's saying that to the church at Ephesus. That's the context of it. But here, we need to come to a place in our life where we turn to our first love. And our first love is not our wife or our husband or our kids. Our first love is Jesus Christ. Jesus said this. He said, you can wrap up the whole law in two things. First of all, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he says, first of all, you love God, and, and you're not going to have a trub- trouble at all loving your neighbor. Can you apply that to marriage? So I said, well, I just can't seem to love my wife. Well, she's your neighbor, right? He says to love your neighbor. Somebody says, well, I, I just hate my husband. Well, the Bible says love your enemies, <laughs> you know, as yourself, you know. All through the Bible, the love, the love, the love. How can you do that? Because Jesus Christ is on the throne of your life. That's the reason we had... At the beginning of this year, we had messages on having a quiet time, reading the Bible, having prayer, making a commitment to that, and then making commitment to service, making commitment to, to giving, making commitment to witnessing. Hey, it wasn't a, I'm not trying to do a legalistic thing here with you. If you feel like it, it is, just, just toss it aside. But I guarantee you, you're going to become closer to God if you do those four things. You just are. Secondly, first, you've got to handle that relationship with God. It's foundational. Secondly, receive the one that you married. Receive them. I said, well, I've done that. Have you really? Have you really received them? And I know that a lot of times we, people get married and think, oh, this is okay. This, we're in love. We're in love. We'll, we'll figure it out. They'll change. I ran across this one uh, guy years ago, and uh, back he was a college student, and he said, yeah, I don't think I can marry her. I think I'm, I'm, I may break up with this girl because I don't think I can marry her. And, um, well, why? Well, I, I just don't think the, <clears throat> the love for God is, is, is where I am right now. And so later on, I find out they're getting married. And I said, hey, was that problem solved? And got kind of upset with me a little bit because he was kind of convicted. And he says, the Bible says you make a godly wife. You are to lead a godly life. We've got to have a wife before you make her godly. So I'm getting the wife, then I'm going to make her godly. And I said, well, you know, that's not really fair that you're trying to change her to make the marriage good. Have you ever just received your spouse with all their faults, all their warts? Thomas, or T. T. Grant Howard, I should say, Jr. has said this. We have a picture of a perfect partner. But we marry an imperfect person. Then we have two options. We can tear up the picture and accept the person or accept the picture and tear up the person. Basically what it's saying is you got to make a choice. You either tear up the picture or you tear up the person. Unless you receive the person and the picture just goes away. Tear it up. Have you received your spouse? So first of all, you've got to understand you, you, what, you, what we're expecting is someone to perfectly fit into our world. Nobody's perfect. Have you received them? Thirdly, you return 
you, rather, you remove the expectations. You take the expectations, this is essential, and take them over and say, God, I'm giving my expectations to you. How do you do that? Well, what happens is they go back over and desires. And sometimes they just not even desires anymore. I mean, you've changed, right? Just like your spouse has changed over the years. Maybe they're not even desires anymore. Maybe, maybe it's just come to a point where it's just something to make you mad. But you give those over to the Lord. And the legitimate things will become desires that if they meet them, you'll be grateful. You'll be surprised. How surprised are you when, when your husband or wife does something nice for you? I mean, do, whoa, I, well, that's great. I wasn't expecting that. Does a man or a woman always have to surprise you in order for you to be grateful for something? That's a lot of pressure. Thirdly, I'll get, them, I'll get my numbers right in a minute. Fourthly, letter D in my outline. That's the reason I'm, I can't number them right. Return to your first works. Men, prioritize your family, protect your family, provide for your family. What, what were you doing for your wife when you got married? What were you doing for your wife when you were trying to win her over? Ladies, what were you doing when you were trying to win the man over? What were you doing when you first got married? When that love was fresh, do that again. It says in Revelation 2, it says, remember, repent, and then return to do the first deeds that you first did. John Bassanio, one of my heroes of the pastor, used to pastor the First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, about 25 or 30 years, 25 years or so. And he said in the beginning of his ministry, he was doing a lot of marriage counseling, and he found out that people would fall out of love a lot of times between four and seven years of marriage. And what he would do is turn to Revelation chapter 2 and said, this is what you need to do. You need to remember what your spouse has done for you and remember why you fell in love with them in the first place. Number two, you need to repent because you are on the throne, not God. Number three, just do what you did in the beginning, both in your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse. And lastly, that's an easy number to remember. <laughs> lastly, you need to rethink your commitment. Is it based on consumerism or a covenant? Consumer, are you a consumer or someone that's involved in the covenant relationship the way God asks us to be? Well, <clears throat> somebody says, well, you know, I've been in marriage counseling before where a person says, I'm committed to my marriage. I'm committed to saving my marriage. What's wrong with that? I mean, I don't want to get involved in semantics too much, but what's wrong with that? Well, it's still about me. It's my marriage. And somebody else says, well, <clears throat> you know, really, okay, then our marriage. Well, that's better. That's still kind of missing something. Suppose one of your teenagers, okay, came up to you. They just got a ticket. It's $300. Tra you know, they were traveling a little too fast. Okay? That's happened. And they come to you, and they know. They're just, they just got to throw themselves on the mercy of the court. There is nothing they can say. Nothing. I mean, they were going way over the speed. It wasn't even close. So what do they say? Oh, why do you put up with me? Why do you? And by the way, that works pretty good sometimes. <laughs> and so the tears begin to come, and you look at them and say, well, because I'm committed to parenting. I feel responsible for you. 
I guarantee you, if you answer them in that way, they will not have a comeback because it's going to shock them. I mean, who does that? I, I just sort of feel responsible for you. You know, I made a commitment when you were born to be a good parent. I'm committed to parenting. But how would that change if you looked at your child, your teenager, your college student, and just say, because I love you and I'm committed to you? Not to parenting. Not to the responsibility. I'm committed to you. Dear friends, that's the kind of marriages we need. I'm not necessarily committed to this, this fly-by-night book that I'm following. I'm not committed to my marriage or our marriage. I'm committed to you. To you. And when is the best time to start this? It's right now. You know, I'm reminded of the shootings that just happened here in Parkland. And the terrorism and the shootings that are going on. A lot of it has to do with just, oh, just hate-filled hearts. You know, they're rejected, they're dejected, they, they go back to a school or while they're in college. And instead of just taking their own life, they take a lot of people's lives. But I guarantee you right now, on this Sunday morning, in Parkland, there's a lot of grief. And I don't know whether those people will ever completely get over that or not. There's something about a sudden death that just really just rips your heart out. My mom died a few years ago, and it was a five or six-year sickness. You've had that experience before. Maybe one of your grandparents, they died. Boy, they've been sick a long time. They were in bed for maybe a couple of years. You saw it coming. You made your peace with it. You went through the grief very slowly, and then it happened. And you say, well, you don't get over that, but what if something happens like what happened to my father-in-law years ago? Pam's dad, heart attack, boom gone in 10 minutes. It's like, it's like something just ripped out of you. It's just all of a sudden, and you think of all the things you could have done, all the things you could have said. Some of you may lose a loved one like that. It may be your spouse. And you think to yourself, boy, if I'd have only known, if I'd have only known, I would have gotten things right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been stubborn about it. I would have I would have embraced them. I would have, I would have given it the biblical try if I'd have just known. But you don't know. You just don't know. And yeah, hearts get ripped out, but when you know you were right with that person and you, you had a great relationship and you integrate, oh, it goes, it goes along so much better than having regrets in your life. And so I'm going to ask you today, start now. Start now. And many of you here today have never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you don't have that foundation built under you of Christ. In fact, he's talking to a Christian man. He's talking to a Christian woman. One that's filled with the Holy Spirit, he says. Saved by the grace of God. You just don't have the power in your life to do that. What we're talking about here, it's impossible. In, in fact, your head's spinning right now. And say, there's no way I can, I can do that long term. And there's no way you can without the power of God in your life. And so I'm going to ask you right now to do some humbling and some receiving. Not just receive your spouse and humble yourself in that relationship. But before you do that, humble yourself before the cross of Jesus Christ. And have a receiving service in your own heart by giving your life to him.
with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I realize that, <clears throat> you know, we pray this a lot, <clears throat> prayer like it. But it's the condition of your heart. Do you, do you want Jesus in your heart? Do you want a life that's worth living? Do you want a, a fulfilled life? Do you want a life that will one day, one day take you to heaven? Do you want that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's the cross of Christ. Will you, will you bow in your, in your heart to the Lord today and ask him to save you? By praying this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you that you love me. Thank you, Lord, that you love me. It's not expected. This Christianity is the only religion, really, at least the original religion, they even taught that God, that you love me. So it's not expected. I don't deserve that love. I don't deserve Jesus dying on the cross for me. But he did. And I want to embrace that now. I want to ask you to forgive me of all my sins and come into my life and help me to be the person the spouse, the young person, the father, the mother that I need to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.